you're listening to Tiger Country, because sometimes you want a better view than the one you can get from being behind the knife. Sometimes you want your conversations to be more audible than the bleeding. Join Nilosh Bahavitz, Joe Bowes, and me, Rishi Kundi, as we talk to our guests about trauma surgery, critical care, powerboating, cats, mandolin, croissants, cats, TV shows, cats, and steak. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the latest episode of Tiger Country. Uh, we are once again joined by what I like to think of the, the fourth member of our podcast, Dr. David Feliciano. Uh, welcome back, sir. Thank you very much, Milos. Um, we're, we're changing it up from our usual trauma topics and um, talking about big, nasty uh, vascular and non-vascular injuries to an equally important and challenging topic that uh, probably uh, doesn't get the attention that it deserves um, because of all the advances in medicine. And we're, we're very grateful uh, to have Dr. Feliciano here to lend his uh, expertise and give us some education on how to manage peptic ulcer disease. So, uh, Dr. DeBose, why don't you take it away for us? Yeah, thanks again, Dr. Feliciano, for joining us. I think, you know, when Milish and I were talking about this, uh, you know, it's really, it blows my mind to some degree. Certainly, you've lived it and you've seen it, but advances in medicine have dramatically improved patient care in a lot of areas. There's no question. But one of those that, to me, has been the most dramatic from a surgical perspective uh, has been ulcer disease, uh, gastric and, and duodenal ulcer disease. Um, you know, PPIs and H. pylori treatment came along and almost have give us almost completely removed the need for certainly routine surgical intervention for most patients. And you've you've lived this. You've probably done. I I you know I think I have you, of the people that I know. You have the most experience with ulcer surgery. Um, give us some historical perspective on what it was like to deal with these patients before PPIs and H. pylori and how that transition has changed practice from your perspective. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Joe. When I was a, a chief resident at the Mayo Clinic, the primary indication for operation on a patient with a duodenal ulcer was in 45% of them intractability. Nobody knew what caused ulcers. Our treatments were often palliative and things like perforation or bleeding certainly occurred, but were much less frequent. And that's of course all reversed now. Uh, primary indication in most hospitals now, about 60, 80% of duodenal ulcer surgery is related to bleeding or perforation. Intractability still occurs in a small subset of patients who appear to have an unknown cause of ulcers other than Zollinger-Ellison. And obstruction of the gastric outlet is also quite uncommon. So intractability has almost disappeared and it's the life-threatening complications in the modern era that the young surgeons see. And it's so different because we all sort of learned our, earned our spurs on elective gastrectomies for ulcer problems, not in an acute situation. Um, just as one example for 
one 10 year period in Houston at the county hospital, we averaged 30 to 35 perforated ulcers a year. <clears throat> at that time, we were also treating the men who appear not to follow medical advice and who had chronic ulcers more than three months with a definitive ulcer operation, even if they perforated at two in the morning. So we did more vagotomies and antrectomies at night than I care to mention, but again, we got tremendous experience. And then there were the bleeders and, and an occasional patient with uh, obstruction. But now it's life-threatening complications and people still die because almost every epidemiologic survey, particularly with perforate ulcers show the most common patient to have a perforate ulcer in the modern era is a man in my age group in their 70s or 80s. And it still tends to be men who abuse alcohol, don't, don't take their medicine, et cetera. So we've gone from perforation in young people <clears throat> over the years to really a much older group who have medical comorbidities in addition to the problem they're having with an acute ulcer uh, complication. So it sounds like, I, you know, you obviously at, at Maryland, the acute care surgery uh, platform there sees a lot of patients. And uh, would you say that the majority of those that actually require an operation, is it all bleeding and perforation and, and bleeding at the tail end after GI has done their thing and all that good stuff? Yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, we don't see hardly any patients with obstruction at the outlet. And I can't recall the last time I heard a patient here being treated for intractability. And again, those kind of patients often end up at tertiary referral centers where they undergo you know, extensive workup for occult CE or other things. But here on the acute care surgery service, it's one or the other. And I think it's important that we don't, since we don't see enough of these, we really do, it's important for us to kind of go over some of the basics, the things that came natural to you and your experience. And I think one of the easiest delineations is the location of the peptic ulcer disease, gastric versus duodenal ulcer. So if we start with talking about gastric ulcers, uh, take me through what kind of, if you are taking a call in the middle of the night or called to assist during the day on a case, what, depending on the location of the ulcer and for a gastric ulcer, what is the operation for perforation, let's say, that you would recommend? Well, there's still some controversy after many years. There are a number of surgeons who still use a pedicled omental patch and just slide it over. The problem with the omental patches on perforated gastric ulcers as compared to duodenal ulcers as the stomach moves and it puts traction on the pedicle. It's certainly not curative. And I'll be honest with you, I've never done it. Um, for the classic gastric ulcers, type one at the insura, type two a gastric and a duodenal and type three pyloro, um, it depends on the quality of the patient, quite frankly. Those are all uh, easily accessible to the surgeon. And in a young, youngish man who's a known smoker, drinker, and crack user, for example, I would do a, oh, I'm very sorry. 
I would do a, a hemigastrectomy or more than antrectomy and resect the gastric uh, lesser curve as well, just to get rid of the area where gastric ulcers tend to recur and then put it back together with either a B1 or a B2, depending on how much tension there is on the anastomosis or proposed anastomosis after you do an extensive coker maneuver. So types one, two, and three are pretty straightforward. Um, you can, in an older patient in whom you don't want to do a full ga gastrectomy, is wedge it out and try and staple it shut. The problem there is if it's on the lesser curve, there's a pretty good chance you're going to bag the nerves of ladder J and affect the motility of the distal stomach. But that's also an acceptable form of therapy when you're not inclined to do a big operation. Uh, for type four ulcers up the GE junction, you might see one in your career or two that are perforated or bleeding. Um, a lot depends on the anatomy. If it's not in the GE junction and you're going to do a gastrectomy, you can extend your resection of the lesser curve up to just adjacent to the GE junction and then close off the lesser curve to give you a narrower uh, gastric outlet that'll fit for a B1, for example. For the type five, you know, the NSAID ulcers that are located anywhere in the stomach, it's usually just a, a regional resection of the ulcer and then treat what needs to be treated post-op, either H. pylori uh, and or um, um, antacid uh, medications, H2 blockers, et cetera, and then get them to stop smoking, which appears to be sort of an accelerant in many patients. So a lot depends on location. A lot depends on whether you feel this is, a, as in the good old days, an acute stress thing that just needs to be patched or locally resected. I, you know, most surgeons who have done a lot of this avoid major gastric resections in thin or petite women who seem to have about a 25% incidence of post-gastrectomy complications post-op, dumping uh, other things that, you know, really affect their digestion and also sex gets into it, location gets into it, uh, status of the patient in terms of acuteness and all. It's interesting that, you know, again, people think if they just put a, a patch on this at a work, I'm sure it does a lot of the time, but the safest thing in a man with a chronic ulcer that's perforated is some type of a hemi gastrectomy or antrectomy. For the really sick patient, is there a role for kind of damage control approaches, meaning close the hole, resuscitate, back, come back and do a definitive operation or discuss the value of that at a, after they're better resuscitated. Yeah, I mean, all the current literature says that doing a definitive operation, as I've just mentioned, is kind of passe, and you are doing damage control with perforations, you're going to seal it some way. With bleeding, you're going to stop the bleeding, and you don't necessarily have to worry about doing a definitive curative operation because certainly duodenal ulcers, you know, 
70 to 90 or 95 percent are related to helicobacter and even with gastric ulcers it's you know 50 to 70 or 80 percent so you have to decide in select patients and we're going to talk more about that in a couple of minutes who let's say have a chronic history of ulcer who have had a prior complication of ulcer who are non-compliant with helicobacter medication, who have developed a complication while on helicobacter medication, or they have been known to be non-helicobacter positive but are still having ulcer complications. And the other one anatomically is if you're, for example, doing a perforated duodenal ulcer and you have a giant ulcer defined as anywhere from two to three and a half centimeters, depending on the book, it's awfully difficult to seal that well with omentum, particularly in a thin patient. So anatomically, you may be forced to do a more definitive operation. But I've noticed that younger surgeons certainly have adopted the damage control, but there are criteria, as I just mentioned, in a stable patient for considering a definitive operation. And it's almost always in men. Where does vagotomy in 2023 fit into this? When do we do it? What type of vagotomy? You know, what, what's your advice to this the surgeon just coming out of training? Uh, I'm not sure I know what vagotomy is anymore, right? I mean, that's yeah. uh, once uh, H. pylori was identified and once a patient had complications, where we used to do, for example, a vagotomy and pyloroplasty or a vagotomy and hemigastrectomy, much of the literature now says you can skip the vagotomy because most surgeons don't have any experience doing it. It adds a certain amount of time to the procedure and you can treat the helicobacter and or acid pepsid problems with the standard medication. So, I mean, I wouldn't have any trouble and you probably wouldn't and maybe Milo's too, but they're very, un younger surgeons are very uncomfortable, you know, taking down the lateral ligament of the left lobe, getting a Weinberg retractor to lift the liver up, getting your finger up in the hiatus and stripping the loose tissue away. So I, it's really hard to suggest that a younger surgeon should add a vagotomy because you can certainly keep a patient on anti-acid medication for a certain amount of time and eliminate any future ulcer problems. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's true, um, you know, when you're talking about gastric perforations, uh, you are going to encounter some zebras occasionally along the way. When I, when I think of zebras, I think of cancers, right? That you step into and you don't know. And we're not, this, this, the intent of this podcast is not the definitive treatment of gastric cancer in 2023. But as the acute care surgeon who cares a perforation that looks suspicious, first of all, what makes it look suspicious to you? And then how does that change your management in the, in the near term? Yeah, great question. Benign ulcers, both in the stomach and the duodenum, when you look directly at it, are excavations. There's a hole in the wall that goes through the wall. Gastric cancer, for example, is a tumor that's growing up into the lumen in the opposite direction and has a hole at its apex 
because it's, it's exceeded its blood supply. Now they're not obviously all that perfect, but if you have an older patient and you're worried at all, you take you know four to six to eight biopsies around the periphery of the ulcer. And honestly, in my practice at county hospitals, I did those biopsies in patients who were older with gastric ulcers that were bleeding or perforated and called the pathologist in, in the middle of the night because I thought it was the right thing to do. If you can stabilize the patient and pathology calls back and says, you know, this is gastric adenocarcinoma. If you know how to do a radical subtotal gastrectomy and the patient's stable, you will save them another anesthetic. This nonsense of, well, I have to do a metastatic workup. You know, you're in the belly, is the liver clear? Yes or no, right? Are the celiac nodes clear? Yes or no? Sure. And I, I have done total gastrectomies in the middle of the night in a youngish woman who had a very suspicious ulcer as the source of her perforation. And it was cancer and we just did it. Now, again, I'm sure younger surgeons will scream and yell that that's not damage control. Well, you have two problems there. You have damage control and you have cancer. So certainly gastric ulcers in older patients that are elevated or firm or you see nodes should be biopsied then you can decide whether you need to, or you wish to do the definitive ulcer operation. Duodenal adenocarcinoma is, you know, one to two, one to 3% of periampulary tumors. I'm not sure I've ever seen one. So if it's a routine excavation, biopsy is not indicated. Yeah. I, I wish I had the power to get the pathologist to come in in the middle of the night, but uh, it's not always a reality when when you're not the chief at Grady at the time or. Yeah, well, I'll tell you one brief anecdote. During my residency in the middle of the night, one of our surgeons who was actually thoracic and uh, vascular, but also was obviously a general surgeon, took the specimen to the lab, frozen himself, cut it, looked at the microscope and came back. And I think it was an esophageal lesion and said, it's cancer. Those kind of surgeons are not around anymore because yeah. they take pathology in their residency. But it was one of the things that impressed me the most about what a real surgeon can be. Yeah, yeah, different times for sure. Yep. Progress, progress forward isn't always innovative, unfortunately. Um, okay, let's um, let's uh, shift gears here just a little bit and. You've mentioned duodenal ulcers on on multiple occasions, and um, and how perhaps we might manage them differently. So, a, a bleeding duodenal ulcer. If you are confronted with a patient that has an upper GI bleed and has a suspected duodenal ulcer that's bleeding, does every single patient uh, with that uh, pathology require an operation and if not, how, how are you going to make the distinction? And then walk me through on those patients that do require an operation, because I think, again, this is one of those things that has perhaps become a lost art. How do you get control of uh, that bleeding in a patient with a, with a duodenal ulcer, especially in that classic posterior location? Uh, the duodenal ulcers only require operation for bleeding about 
five to 10% of the time. Certainly with all the endoscopic techniques, particularly epinephrine uh, with a combination of a heater probe or a cold probe and or a clip on a visible vessel will stop the bleeding 75 to 80% at the original bleed. And if they re-bleed eventually, you know, you're gonna get up to 90 to 95% with endoscopy to take care of the bleeding. So it's a highly selected group of patients who fail endoscopic therapy, who bleed in the hospital after two endoscopies, who suddenly drop their pressure a couple of days after being on good medical therapy. And it's, it's a small group, but those who keep dropping their pressure require continuous transfusion are usually in an older group, they have a risk of stroke or myocardial infarction during these hypotensive episodes. Uh, some people still use the classic uh, six units of transfusion mm -hmm. in the first 24 hours. I, I, you should always keep that in mind, but if you have to rescope somebody the next day to get it stopped, that may be a better choice for the older patient in whom you're able to maintain uh, their pressure. Operation really hasn't changed if you're forced into it. Uh, almost everybody still does a longitudinal incision through the uh, prepyloric channel, through the pylorus, and through the proximal duodenum. I have done some duodenotomies only, but your exposure for a duodenal bulb posterior ulcer is certainly not as good as if you cut the pyloric muscle ring. Um, the U-stitch really works in most patients. Uh, you're going to get both ends of the gastroduodenal and that posterior branch vessel that comes up from behind. The one caveat for younger surgeons is that what is next to the gastroduodenal artery, the distal common bile duct. So you can't take a giant proline needle and whack it through the bed there. You, you've got to stay in the ulcer crater if possible. Now, one of the problems if you've done these is that the needles that are on silk and polypropylene and vicryl suture bend very easily. And the base of an ulcer because of all the inflammation is often quite rigid. And neither of you will remember, but there actually used to be thick free needles called Mayo needles that you could just loop your suture on the end but it would never bend. And if the U-stitch doesn't work, the books will tell you to ligate both ends of the gastroduodenal artery. Occasionally you can see them in the ulcer bed. Otherwise you're obligated to find them on the backside there, which I think an experienced surgeon would be very comfortable doing, but other people maybe not. But I'm not sure how many times I've had to do that, maybe once or twice. You can usually get it in the bed and on one notorious occasion, all the stitches didn't stop the trickle. And I simply got a piece of Surgicel, stuffed it as tightly as I could in the ulcer crater and actually closed the duodenum with my fingers crossed and everything worked out fine. So your goal is as quickly as possible, get the bleeding stopped. Don't start thinking about doing a definitive operation 
don't do any dissection except a modest coker and get in there with either a gastric or duodenal ulcer, stop the bleeding. With a gastric ulcer, which you didn't ask me about, one of my fetishes is if you know what the location is, like on the lesser curve, I've seen many surgeons just slash through the middle of the stomach or close to the ulcer on the lesser curve. That of course denervates everything. So I've learned a long time ago, go near the greater curve, save the nerves on the medial side and just evert the mucosa until you see the ulcer. It's the right thing to do. And then once you control the bleeding and do the biopsy, just staple it shut if you wish. But the goal here is stop the bleeding as quickly as possible. I have watched some junior attendings do all sorts of machinations before they get to the ulcer and it's silly. It's damage control. It's just like a gunshot wound. If, it, if you're making it look complicated, maybe you're doing it wrong. Um, like all surgery, believe me. <laughs> okay. Um, the, these are some of the most challenging cases for me. Um, duodenal perforations, there's inflammation, things are socked in. You, you mentioned giant ulcers previously um, in the podcast. They're not always in the, the same location how long this has been going on for not just the acute perforation, but the inflammatory process. How, how do we tackle these? Because, you know, we've talked about damage control versus definitive. And sometimes when I'm challenged by one of these, I just scratch my head and I think I, I'm going to pick an option and it's going to be the wrong option. So how, how does one set oneself up for success here? Yeah, it depends on whether you're willing under certain conditions to treat the acute problem and then treat the potential chronic problem. Historically, if somebody had symptoms over three months when I was a young attending, most papers around the world describe that as a chronic ulcer. Now that was before PPIs and everything else. So things have changed, but that was an ulcer that you would want to think about doing a definitive procedure in a man. Under three months was considered to be an acute life stress problem, an acute issue, and all you wanted to do was patch it. So again, with acute care surgery patients, we don't always take a definitive history. For example, historically about 30, 40% of patients who perforate ulcers with careful questioning will tell you they've had symptoms for months. Now, two thirds of them don't have that, so you can't really know. But in a man who's a smoker, a drinker, has a giant ulcer and is in stable hemodynamic condition, I would certainly consider doing a definitive procedure. In a woman, hardly ever, frankly. And the definitive procedures or the easiest one is vagotomy and pyloroplasty. A more definitive one is, of course, vagotomy and hemigastrectomy, or if you're not willing to do the vagotomy, antrectomy or hemigastrectomy. The, the patients who need a bigger operation are often defined by the size, as you mentioned. 
a giant ulcer in the duodenum just can't be patched very well usually. And you probably ought to think about converting it to like a, a pyloroplasty. And that would be a one layer pyloroplasty uh, named after Dr. Weinberg from the Long Beach VA and UCLA who did over a thousand VNPs in his career. Yeah, I, it's it. Every time I'm confronted with one of these, and they're somehow too close to the pancreas for for me to adequately dissect them off, or the the hole is too big, and I'm struggling to figure out um, how to how to close it, how to reconstruct this to give the patient the the best possible chance at at a, a meaningful recovery without having that stump blow out. It's um, it's certainly challenges me more than some of the other more straightforward ACS things that we do. Yeah, um, you're, you're stretching the, uh, the discussion here to most ulcers that are deeply penetrating near the pancreas are, are of course the posterior ulcers. Mm -hmm. Almost all perforations are anterior or superior where with a good cochra maneuver you can usually get enough tissue to make your omental patch closure or even a primary closure relatively straightforward. Um, the data is pretty clear over the last 10 to 15 years that if you're a competent laparoscopic surgeon, you can certainly do a pedicle omental patch. And if you're not, you can do a small upper midline incision and do an omental patch open the trade-off, as you know, has been there are more leaks post-op with the right. laparoscopic approach. And almost always, they're probably from the superior end of the repair, where the laparoscopic surgeon probably couldn't see completely. Right. Now, if you see a giant ulcer or your endoscopy showed a kissing ulcers with perforation up front, um, penetration posteriorly, if you have terrible scarring that you can't get omentum up there, uh, frozen abdomen, you know, basically those kind of patients, you have to make a decision on whether you're going to do a definitive operation if it's not a frozen abdomen. But when you have a high risk ulcer situation, some of the things I mentioned before, failed helicobacter, kissing ulcers, didn't take their helicobacter, they have ulcers for unknown reasons. It's still a consideration. With the posterior ulcers, meaning the bleeding, ideally you won't get into duodenal problems if you don't go there, right? Mm -hmm. So if you ligate the bleeder and the patient's a little older and had a little hypotension, you're just gonna close it as a pyloroplasty rather than start considering a resection that brings you down to the duodenum. My guess is you've never done a Nissen closure. You've probably never done, um, I'm blanking on the other one, having a senior moment here. Oh, a Bancroft. And even in the our ulcer paper uh, from Houston, which interestingly is my most widely quoted paper in my career with John Birch, we did six Nissens or the other operation. So it's rare to have to think about those, but I always tell younger surgeons, don't 
create a problem with the duodenum unless the perforation in some way mandates you do more than a patch. Is there a role sometimes in these, you know, you, you mentioned some of these chronic ones. Um, I've I've certainly tried to educate myself and you're absolutely right. The, the Bancroft and the Nissen, I am familiar with in terms of my reading. Have I ever done it in a patient? No, of course not. Um, is there a role in the acute setting to do some sort of pyloric exclusion if this ulcer is chronic and you're dealing with some sort of gastric outlet obstruction? Well, if, if the year was 1908, yes, but I've never done one for an ulcer. Uh, in trauma, we only do one to three a year now, and it's almost always for a delayed diagnosis of a duodenal uh, hole that was missed at the previous operation, or on rare, rare occasions, I don't like my, du my duodenal repair, it's narrowed or, or discolored. It's always mentioned uh, in the emergency general surgery course that yes, pyloric exclusion is a consideration with the difficult closure of a duodenal perf. Never done one in 45 years. Yes, sir. You, you mentioned, you know, one of the things that you, you, you sort of cut your, your teeth on one of the patient populations that required surgery uh, was the gastric outlet obstruction uh, patients. Um, can, you, can you tell us, you know, th this is something specifically because of everything that we have available to us, PPIs and the like, that we, we really see almost none of. If you had that patient today that had chronic gastric outlet obstruction, can you walk us through some of the the drainage procedures and things that you think would be appropriate to manage these patients? Yeah, the first thing that you deal with is, of course, their profound dehydration, malnutrition, and their hyponatremic, hypochloremic, hypokalemic, metabolic alkalosis. And they often will require a couple of days of repletion of fluids and electrolytes. Then the most critical step is endoscopy with repeated biopsies to verify either visually or by biopsy that this is not pyloric antral cancer. And even if that may, takes two endoscopies, that's the key to me because once they're repleted, you can offer dilatation to some patients if you have it locally available. But the definitive treatment, frankly, is a laparoscopic gastrojejunostomy. You, you make it as simple as possible for the older patient. Don't need to open them if it's benign. If you're a competent surgeon, you can do a GJ, that's fine. And that's what I would recommend. I, I don't see any purpose whatsoever in doing this open since you can readily staple this or so. Mm -hmm. Unusual problem, as you mentioned, uh, patients who have <laughs> probably carry helicobacter, don't know they do, deny symptoms for a long time, things get really scarred. I've only done a couple in my career and it's incredible to me how small the outlet can come. I have a picture of one that's about the size of half a pencil eraser. I mean, it's just incredible they were able to maintain themselves. Yeah. 
Well, as always, good sir, you are a wealth of knowledge and we love picking your brain. You're, you've been a, a many of repeated guests from the time that this podcast was born at Shock Trauma now to our era under Milos's leadership. Um, and we've learned a lot about you from our random question sections in the past, your love of power boating, your love of ABBA, uh, a variety <laughs> of different things. Uh, Does anybody remember ABBA? Uh, well, apparently you do. Still, still probably plays on a warm Saturday overlooking the water, I would imagine, around the house. ABBA's huge in Europe. I, you know, you, I go back home to London. It's on the radio. That's it. <laughs> yeah. the time. I'm Absolutely. glad to hear it. So I, I, my question today, one, I really wanted to start with, I, I think people forget about or don't appreciate what an, 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 the area you trained in and how iconic it was. We talk about it in so many ways. As you know, I trained in vascular surgery with Hazem Safi, who was one of your co-residents at uh, back one of in the, the day. Chief residents. Yeah, one of your chief residents. And both of you trained under Michael DeBakey. And I there's really no other iconic surgical name that resonates so much across the surgical spectrum as, as his. But training under him was no, and in that era was no easy day. I mean, it was a it was a true pyramidal system. People could be fired on a whim. Right. He, he was a taskmaster from an older school himself. Um, I'm not sure some of the stories that Hazem told me would certainly not fly today, but I, I wonder if you could give me, what was that like to train with him? And do you have any kind of anecdotes or stories that from that era that really kind of encapsulate what that experience was like? Well, when you're a fellow on a service, the, the joke is nobody will tell you, but he hate, hated when any of the assistants holding the sticks or whatever tried to move the light. Everybody just waited for you to do it the first time. He would go bananas, don't touch the light. Uh, so I did it and of course I got reprimanded. My, my one anecdote with him when I was a fellow was uh, an open AAA and I was exposing the aneurysm with a student or an intern or something, the DeBakey partner, he had four um, trained cardiovascular surgeons who ran his rooms. So he would do which cases he wanted and the others he would leave to the associate. But there was no associate in the room for whatever reason. And I was breezing along and I heard him walk in the OR because you've heard the stories that he wore high-heeled boots. Yeah. He was quite short. He had custom-made boots. And when he walked, he shuffled. And he came up right behind me. And everybody sort of held their breath. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm exposing the aneurysm in the retroperitoneum. And he said, I can't see because your hands, <clears throat> excuse me, your hands are in the way. And there was kind of a pause. And then I had a brain fart. And I said to him, I would think that the great Michael E. DeBakey could see through my hands. <laughs> this is a true story. Were you fired immediately? or? Well, well, the interesting thing is everybody in the room held their breath because nobody ever talked back to him. Yeah. You know, he had been the dean, the provost, this of the medical school, chairman of a department of surgery that made so much money you couldn't believe it. And he, he turned around and started to walk out of the room and he made one final comment. He said, well, I can't see through your hands, but I can see through the holes in your head. 
that's my DeBakey story. Absolutely true. The story got around the fellowship. Everybody said, what are you, crazy? And I can't quite explain why I said that to this day, but I was grateful he didn't fire me. Yes. Did he, did he really, did, when he got on an elevator, did everybody really else get off the elevator? Was that a thing? That's another story that I always heard. Yeah, I don't remember, Joe. Um, he he made he made ward rounds. There's no question on his patients. Yeah, and his service was so big that the intern or the chief resident or the fellow had to really know which patient was which. Yeah, there's an apocryphal story that he went into one patient's room and said, "You know, we're going to have to." open your chest and stop your heart and replace your mitral valve. And the patient looked kind of, you know, astonished and said, I thought you were gonna do a fem pop bypass on my leg. So you really had to be careful, but I don't know about the elevator story. He was, he was very bright. He had a sense of humor. He really enjoyed having power to watch him assign medical consults was incredible. All the cardiologists, nephrologists, whatever, at Methodist Hospital would hover around at morning report. And he would say, well, this patient, you know, needs a cardiac cath, send it to so-and-so. This patient's in post-op renal failure, have this nephrologist. I mean, he was responsible for the economic well-being of a whole lot of people in the hospital. Wow. Incredible power. I was yeah. in awe. I wish I had it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly different era. Um, you know, in, in past podcasts, we talked about the boat. I hope the boat's doing well and you've been out on it a bit, but it sounds like there's a new addition to potentially to the Feliciano Navy. Last time we chatted, uh, you talked about a kayak that was soon to arrive. How is this going to play into the maritime recreation structure? <laughs> Well, the boat is great fun. I wish it were faster, but my wife only gave me so much money to buy what I got. <laughs> the kayak is, we, our, our community here on the river just redid the kayak ramp. So it's much easier to lift your kayak. You know, they're usually about 37, 45 pounds. You want to buy something you can lift at my age. But we have a, a direct ramp right into the water and it makes it quite easy. Uh, you have to buy a dry suit uh, to keep you warm in the cooler weather. And I'll tell you, people actually kayak on the South River in the winter, the real diehards. Uh, you can buy a cheap kayak for 200 or 300 at some of these discount uh, department stores. Yeah. We went to a real kayak shop where there are people who are very well versed. They take you out, have you go out in the kayak to see if the height and everything is good. And they teach you a little bit about paddling. So it's a very easy thing to do when you live close to water. Yeah, It's good exercise, nowhere near as, uh, as intense as a jogging or running, but still some. And I'd recommend it to anybody. Well, I would, you know, I, I this plays into my next question nicely because I, I, I imagine that uh, Dr. Rizicki may have had a role in getting you more active in doing uh, some kayaking, although you both love the water. But studies have shown that men live longer when they're married or have a long-term partner. Uh, obviously, Dr. Rizicki has, uh, you, you, the two of you have a long-standing relationship. 
how is that kept you moving? What is, what, what is your better half? What, what does she really do to keep you moving and, and pressing forward? She reminds me frequently that every study that's ever been done shows that if you will do a minimum of uh, 30 minutes of reasonably intense exercise, three or more days a week, you will live longer. And I accept that that goes back to Ken Cooper in Dallas with aerobics a million years ago, where it was the same thing a couple of days a week. So we do walk two miles uh, every day. Uh, on a day like today where M&M is at uh, 6.30, we may do it later or we may take a day off, but uh, you get so stiff when you're my age, it's just incredible if you don't exercise and walking is stressless. It's good for you. It's great to be outside. And she's pushed me to do that. We, we occasionally have a negotiation in the morning. Are you up to going out today? And if I answer no, I'm going to get why. <laughs> so, you know, you got two legs, you're breathing why. So yeah. She's had a, an incredible impact on my well-being in ways I can't even describe, including being my doctor when I had septic shock from cholangitis and a base deficit of minus 13. She was my doctor. Yeah. Oh, and and the, the cool thing about your relation, one of the many cool things, you have such a wonderful relationship. It's certainly something I admire intensely, uh, is that the two of you work together and you operated together, I presume, at, at various times. Yeah, Greece is very, very independent. And I can, I'll just tell you one brief story. I, I was in the operating room on a Friday night or something. We had been really busy just with day surgery and early trauma. And in OR1, which was our main trauma operating room at Grady, I saw Grace doing a liver injury with a, somebody really young, a medical student, an intern or something. And she didn't invite me, but I scrubbed in and I didn't think she could see well. So I took my left hand and I grabbed the right lobe of the liver to elevate it out of the backside. And as I pulled my hand across the liver, the omentum that she had so nicely plugged in the liver crack was pulled out. <laughs> so that was my first move. And there was kind of silence between us. And then she, she said to me, get out. <laughs> no hole in the head comment. <laughs> I walked out of the room. Yeah, she was angry with me. I sort of could tell, <laughs> obviously. Get out. <laughs> Grace denies this story, but I can tell you it's totally true. <laughs> Fair enough. Very cool. Well, Dr. Feliciano, thank you again for joining us. And it's always, I, I call you regularly just to chat with you about things. And I've always, uh, benefited from your wisdom. And I'm glad that we have now a venue for other people to benefit as well. well. I appreciate the kind comments and Milos, I appreciate you inviting me. And Joe, we'll see you in Houston in about four weeks. Yes, sir. Milos, you want to take us out, buddy? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, of course, to uh, Dr. DuBose for always being here and helping us provide uh, education to the masses. Obviously, Dr. Feliciano and his, his wealth of knowledge you might not remember, sir, but the, the last time we had you on the podcast, you said that there's one thing you could teach 
a junior colleague, it would be how to take perpendicular bites of a vessel when you're putting a vessel back together. So as we say goodbye to all our listeners, I've got my, my driver, my pickups, and a couple of bits of graft here. Um, and I'm going to uh, spend some time here with Dr. Feliciano getting a personal lesson. So thank you to everybody. And we look forward to uh, having you join us on the next episode of Tiger Country. Goodbye. Thanks again. You've been listening to Tiger Country. On behalf of Milos Bohovitz, Joe DeBose, and myself, thanks for joining us. And just in case, this doesn't count toward your CMEs, and please don't use this to study for your in-service. We'll be back soon.